0: Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at artists and activists and their creative pursuits, as well as producing articles on politics and entertainment. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by TechMeister producer Marshall Brown and by our artist-activist of the show, Engineer and energy expert Darlon Chang. Support for Snap
1: Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snapsessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snapist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Sambas. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today.
0: Snap Sessions has been covering environmental issues since our premiere episode in 2018. Episode 56 includes two interviews on environmental subjects an interview with environmental activist and futurist Darlan Chang, which you will hear later, and the following piece, where we interview five Mendocino High School green activists regarding recent court trial. These trials feature young people suing both the federal and state governments, recently the state of Montana, regarding their dereliction of duty toward the health of their citizens. The notion is that by ignoring climate change, they are endangering their own citizens. The initial lawsuit filed in twenty fifteen was called Juliana versus the United States. The most recent was tried this past summer in Montana and involved sixteen plaintiffs ranging in age from five to twenty two. Here now our interview with Francesca Mills, Max Oatney, Knut Quinsland, Papiano Farrell, and Sarah Rose, committed green activists from Mendocino High School. I'm with a group of Mendocino High School and community high school students and or recent graduates here for SNAP sessions. These are people who all have had a fair amount of environmental conscience or activism on their side in the last years. We're here to talk about some of these recent trials that have gone on, which are effectively groups of young people suing both the federal government and the state of Montana over their rights as citizens for a clean and healthy environment. So, welcome everybody here to this round robin. Francesca was first up, so I would like everyone to have a chance to introduce themselves and say a little bit about how they became interested in environmentalism or climate policy. Or Hello,
2: my name is Francesca Mills. I'm a recent graduate of Mendocino High School. I will be attending Scripps College in the fall entering the environmental analysis program and anthropology program. I first became interested in the environment inherently by just living in Mendocino and growing up here and experiencing like the vast ecosystems that we have right outside our doors. And by just living and breathing in the environment, I wasn't even really aware that environmental science was a field that you could separate from other things because I was so close to it just naturally by living here. And then later as I entered high school, I was able to engage with Noyo Center for Marine Science and Ecology Action. And I started doing more field work and really like studying the environment on a level where you could see how fast it's degrading and how important it is to conserve resources and be mindful about how we use the planet. I just love how interdisciplinary and inherently creative it is. It's not just one field and it's fast. So I have great excitement towards my future in this
0: well thank you francesca let's go now to how about max oatney tell us a little bit about who you are and how you became interested in the environment
2: hi
3: so my name is max oatney i'm going into my sophomore year at the mendocino high school and i first kind of researched and worked at some form of environmental activism during mun club when I looked into alternative uses of power and power sources for Venezuela, which is a resource-cursed country dependent on fossil fuels. So that was fascinating to learn about. I agree with Francesca in that Mendocino is sort of a safe haven for environmentalism because everything here is beautiful and wonderful. It would be odd to grow up in a different place. And whenever I travel to, say, a more urban environment, it's noticeably worse. And I think it's just very important to me that as many people as possible have the experience of growing up in nature.
0: Great. Thank you, Max. And uh, Knut Kvinsland, go ahead, give us a little bit about your background and how you came to it.
4: Hello. So I'm Knut Kvinsland, and I've always been really interested in maintaining a good environment because the majority of my favorite things to do involve the environment around me and the outdoors. So maintaining that is essential to my happiness.
0: Thank you. This is Papillon O'Farrell, and he comes to us from Albion.
5: Hi, pleasure to be here. I think I probably was in environmentalism as soon as I was out of the womb, because the womb is like the safe haven of perfect environment. And Mm. I think there's an environmentalist in everyone because of that, because from the very beginning, you're separated from that perfect environment. And we really kind of mess things up in our own outside world. But I love activism. It's a way you can change future and and make it better. I definitely was able to keep that feeling alive by living in such a beautiful place. Like Francesca, I'm also involved with Ecology Action, or at least I'm taking classes there.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Pappy and uh, Sarah Rose. Take it away.
6: Yeah, I feel the same way that everybody does. Growing up in a place like Mendocino, we're surrounded by a beautiful natural environment and also just like a very active community of people that are working to better our community in the world. I was one of those kids that was always very aware of political and social issues and worried about them and doing research and whatever sort of like mini activism I could do. But as I became a high schooler. I got really involved with the movement to save Jackson Demonstration State Forest and did a ton of on-the-ground activism and organizing with them. I've also been involved with the Noyo Center, doing a lot of education for younger kids about marine science and environmental science and how to interact with our natural world and protect it. Currently, I'm also working at the Grassroots Institute with the Noyo Headlands Working Group. So It's something that I'm very passionate about and devote a lot of my time to, and I'm really excited to be here today talking about some of the really inspiring youth activists.
0: Uh, Those were wonderful intros, by the way. If I was fielding a green hit team, uh, you guys would be perfect recruits. (laughs) I mean that in the best sense. I really do. So we're here today to talk about young people and taking on the government and taking on big corporations in terms of lawsuits i am not a lawyer and i'm probably kind of feeble in terms of understanding of the law having said that i have been saluting two lawsuits at least that i know of juliana versus the united states which started in 2015 and it's a bunch of young people suing the government in pursuit of life liberty and property and of course our government system, our legal system is geared toward property. And that's something I think that it makes it so they have to listen to. What you want with a court is that they have to entertain the lawsuit as such. So speaking their language is very important. You've had a chance to look at these a little bit. What has been your reaction to these lawsuits? And do you think young people should sue the government over the health of the planet? Uh, Let's start with you, Francesca
2: reading the news and seeing how a lot of young activists are starting to put pressure on the government to own up to all the environmental degradation and the social issues, environmental racism, and this unfair decision that's made on behalf of every single citizen of the world that our resources will be allocated to big ag and to industrial corporations that only really benefit 10% of the world. And even the benefit of it is fleeting and limited based off how many resources we have left. These young people standing up and addressing the government and getting in the news and being aggressive with their passion and their care for the environment is one of the most powerful things that we can see. And having other kids stand up inspires the next generation. And now we're just looking at the government and seeing what they're going to do, what their next move is, and if they're going to really own up to this and follow through with this lawsuit. And then what the results of that are going to be is really the most powerful thing
3: yes yeah, so i had not heard of these lawsuits prior to making this podcast but they seem to resonate similarly to other youth environmental actions taken recently in the past few years a young person sort of epitomizes change in power in society because there's something intrinsically wrong with taking that away from a person who just wants what's better for general society who wants what's better for their family for them for their environment it infuses that message in a person when they see this young protester, as opposed to watching a corporation make a new slogan about that. As a citizen, I believe that reasonably preventable health issues such as local pollution should be desisted. I side with these young activists who bravely identify and work to deconstruct a problem woven deep into modern society. To stand up in this way, especially as a youth, is valiant. I believe that within a democracy, citizens, even those disallowed from voting, should possess the ability to protest and even take action in the form of something along the lines of a lawsuit, making this only allowed for adults or people able to make impacts in American political scenes just doesn't really make sense because that does not
4: represent change. Well, Max introduced me to these lawsuits when telling me about this podcast. I'm glad that some people in our generation are standing up for the rest of us and for the rest of the world, because it's really important to have that first step that says you care. You want this to change.
0: Thanks, Knut. Pappy, same question about the trials and uh, what you're learning from them.
5: Yeah, I hadn't heard about either of these prior to the interview request. Respect to them. I mean, respect to the the people pushing them forward. It's really important that our government follow throughs on what it promises us. It's, it's necessary that we have the ability to sue our government and that people are doing it. And I really hope they go through. If it did, it could open the door to some pretty positive change, very impactful change, maybe help people feel a little more reverent toward nature and not so exploitive. We are one of the most energy-intensive cultures and biggest consumers on this planet, so it is still our responsibility and our government's responsibility to amend this crisis.
6: So I was peripherally aware of these, but not following them super closely. I think that it is vitally important to hold our government and our government officials responsible for the part that they play in our current climate crisis, because passing new legislation is one of the quickest and most efficient ways to decrease pollution, atmospheric carbon dioxide, and whichever specific issue you're targeting, if the government introduces legislation that stops big corporations from doing that, then, you know, snap, it's done. But I also think that it's important for us to acknowledge and remember that just because we have these groups of kids, youth, young people standing up and suing the government, we need to continue working on a community level, on a state level, on a personal level, whatever level you feel that you can make a difference or make an impact because the strength in the climate movement comes from numbers. And from people all over the world doing all sorts of different organizing and work. Because if we allow these groups of people to fight this fight on their own, then the chances of them succeeding are you know a lot less than if we band together and all do our part.
0: Hey, I have the first of the more fanciful questions. Um, what kind of a future green economy would you like to see? Any specific ideas you might have? Anything. Um, what are some things you'd like to see, Francesca?
2: When I picture a green future, it's something that is utopic, but in a way that is still imperfect and, of course, is something that needs to be worked on and developed, but gearing back to fundamental human technology, such as growing a portion of your own diet and doing like your own small-scale personal changes to not support these big industries that are polluting the environment and kind of microscaling your life. And I think that's really like the most fundamental change that I would like to see. But I also think urban development and bigger scale green investments and reformation of government policies towards not only resource management, but also human justice integrated within that and green collar jobs and redirecting the entire industry that our economy supports. So I think those are the main things I see in a green utopia future.
0: Great. Max, your turn. Green utopia. A good method of getting there
3: would be to consider it a constant fluid change, because what's considered normal today is likely to become deviant in the future. This pattern happens constantly. And if we manage to shorten the gap, we could make things happen much quicker. For instance, smoking in the U.S. took many, many years before it was widely considered unhealthy. And if we manage to pour enough research and funding into shortening that, things will happen a lot quicker. I'd like to see funding for this research and temporary infrastructure increased, as well as efforts made to educate the youth and inspire a powerful sort of negativity towards destructive corporations. And I believe that funding developing nations should logically precede green energy alternatives to more developed nations, as many nations are incapable of diverging from fossil fuel resource curses which is a huge issue because they're at the bottom of the supply chain in a lot of ways, and we need to uproot that before
4: we can tackle smaller issues in more developed countries. Well, I would like to see our agriculture system to reduce greenhouse emissions from having farms closer to stores. And I would also like to see the reduction of urban spread that enables overuse of resources and hydrogen cars become more available to lower financial brackets because that's a lot more renewable. And I would also like to see countries that burn coal in large amounts in their houses, such as Madagascar, for heat to be given aid to find alternative heating sources that are renewable.
0: Uh, Take it away, Pappy.
5: I really like this question because I think imagining what the future could be is really important. And there's something called the end of history illusion, which is... Since we're at the end of history and we know everything that's happened, but we don't know anything in the future, it kind of seems like this is all there is and this is all there ever will be. But that's not true. In the next 50 years, there's going to be a lot of change and it all depends on what we decide that change is going to be right now. And it's also really fun to imagine utopia. So to answer the question, I would use less resources. I think we use way too much In the first place, renewable or not, we shouldn't be needing so much electricity for one household or one person. Things should be smaller scale. We should not have to travel as far to run our lives. So that's kind of a more structural downscaling, but also agreeing that industry is not necessarily the solution to all our problems. And knowing that a lot of people in this culture believe in techno solutionism, as it's called which is technology is going to solve all of our problems. But the industrial revolution kind of brought us to this point. And I don't think that the industrial revolution is going to bring us out of this point. So encouraging people to use less energy, consume less, encouraging development that isn't car dependent, like the giant sprawling suburbs in Phoenix. If you want to get to the supermarket in Phoenix, you have to use gas and You shouldn't have to. You should be able to walk to the corner store in your own neighborhood and get whatever you want there. Also, I think this is very important. If we want to get to a better place, we should cultivate a wider appreciation for nature and allow people to have more positive relationships to nature that doesn't lead to people growing up thinking that it's something to be exploited and to recognize that it's the reason for our existence. And finally, changing government policy. And I think that's how we get to utopia.
6: Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what everyone's been saying. I think that the way that we reduce our personal footprint is by keeping things more local and more walkable, trying to use less resources. But the society that we live in is sort of inherently geared towards promoting consumerism and overconsumption as much as possible. And switching to those sort of lifestyles and reducing your own carbon footprint isn't always accessible to everybody. People that live in huge cities where they have no other option but to drive, and they can't afford to move out to the country. Ultimately, what we need is sort of like a societal overhaul. I mean, we're one of the richest countries in the world. We have so much money. Our government has so much money that could be redirected towards these green solutions. And I think that we need to do things like these kids are doing, suing the government and really calling out the way that we choose to use our resources and channel that more towards making these green solutions accessible to everybody.
0: Great. Have any of you heard of the Drawdown? I think it's a website, but it's a big, thick book and it has like a hundred different solutions for all the different things that come up all these different energy uh, solutions, all these different ways to live, etc. cetera. It's quite an interesting thing. And it, it imagines the next 30 years. If you look online, just Google green futures, like cartoon versions of them, you will also see all these beautiful pictures of these green utopias and stuff. So quick round of, it could be hostility if you want, but it can also be kind of a reasoned judgment. Imagine yourself sort of in a prosecutorial role, and who would you hold responsible for the eco and climate disasters you were inheriting?
2: That is a bit of a loaded question. (laughs) But you know, like, yeah, that's kind of, at this point, what humans naturally want to do, allocate blame and be like, this person, this organization, this government, this nation, this continent owes XYZ amount of money to compensate for the amount of carbon in the atmosphere or whatever. And uh, while I get the role in that taking responsibility and really like kind of hashing it out, as a whole, we should just revert to more positive responses. In a way, this blame of a government is a positive response because the government can choose if they go through with the lawsuit. And it's more symbolic than anything. It's just... Yes, we've messed up and yes, we want to make it better. I think it needs to be less blame and more collaboration. So when you're just like looking at the whole industry and the whole world and how things are supported, I think it's a vicious cycle that needs to be broken with positive action and things like this lawsuit, but things that follow with a response that isn't semi-permanent and something that is long-lasting and resilient to whatever new policy or new, you know, economical craze that occurs. It needs to be a retaining decision that just starts this ability to accept the flaws within human consumption, but addresses it in a way that not only benefits the environment, but benefits all socioeconomic groups that benefits the entire economy and benefits the resilience of cities and nations.
0: Well, I appreciate that, too, and your also your desire not to be overly punitive and get the job done type thing. Let's go to Max Oatney.
3: I believe that just as an entire community is held responsible for plastic pollution in a state park, the entire developed world is responsible for the climate disaster at hand. Of course, impacts vary, but anyone capable of either driving a car or producing a line of aircraft engines should take responsibility and work towards greener alternatives accordingly. To inspire the most environmentally destructive individuals to change, there must be a push for the working class to make similar efforts. What I'm trying to say is that I believe we can't let anyone off the hook. And I think it's impossible to really blame one side of the equation for the problem. Of course, the consumers blame the producers and the producers blame the consumers. But it's constantly a game of blame shifting, in my opinion. And I think everyone must take responsibility for there to actually be a positive
4: and long lasting change. I kind of have all what Max just said. I'd probably just
5: agree with Max there.
0: Fair enough, I get it, Max. Point match to Max Oatney, great. Okay, Pappy.
5: Anyone that believes beauty should be converted into money and that money is the ultimate goal and that it's okay to sacrifice anything for money, but like everyone else, it's it's everyone's fault and it's some people's fault, It's hard to say who to blame, and it's hard to say how they should be punished. I don't really actually think anybody should be punished. I think if we want to get over this, we can't be causing more strife and upset between our own species. We have to work together. I like to go to pointing at the rich people and the people that have all the power because I see them as having the most negative impact and manipulating people. Yes, we all have a responsibility, and... Our system needs to change to make it easier for us to carry out our responsibilities.
0: Thank you. And Sarah Rose, any responsibility for all these dastardly things that have happened?
5: Yeah, I pretty much
6: agree with what everyone has said so far. I think if we really look at what the root of the climate crisis is, probably the two things to blame are colonialism and capitalism. But there's no one person or company on the planet right now that is like, the person that should be blamed for that it's no one's fault and it's everyone's fault and honestly i don't think it really matters whose fault it is that much and the only way that we can really move forward is if everybody is willing to work to create the future that they want to see and to collaborate with other people and get rid of blame and just focus on the way forward
0: Great. Well, I appreciate that. That kind of sinks my final question about what kind of brutal punishments you might implement. Having said that, you are free to have one more go and to design any brutal punishments. Or you can just say, these are some regulations I might lay down or something. So in other words, you can see this rather than brutal punishments question as some good regulations you might set in the way of things. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. What exactly do us as youth expect of prior generations and the government to do to kind of compensate for all the damage that's been done? And yeah, like when I thought about it, I, I was considering stuff like green taxing. So when industries are so focused on depleting all the resources and creating pollution, there should be a certain cost that comes with that. The narrative that our economy has written has been it's easier to pollute the environment than it is to restore it and to keep it clean. That needs to be reversed to making it really hard to pollute the environment and making it really hard for these industries to take advantage of cheaper resources, cheap labor, and what they consider to be cheap people. That way, the whole mindset around what's happening in the world will be reversed and it will be expensive. And then it will almost be a value switch to environmentalism isn't for green hippies who want to grow their gardens and want to live in Mendocino County. It's going to be environmentalism is for people who want to save money. It's for people who want to be healthy, to not have sickness, to take care of each other. And that whole system will support itself because it's just the value of life and the value of taking care of everything and of being sustainable and being secure. It's just security regulations that really focus on targeting that advantage that a lot of these one percenters have is what's going to really change and be a good punishment for for all the the damage that's been done
3: i think in this instance it's the right decision to bite the hand that feeds you as opposed to biting the proletariat for no reason i don't think there's a single unanimously effective punishment although encouraging a push For eco-friendly vehicles for instance may be effective i feel that companies should incorporate micro punishments or at least reward customers for making more environmental choices say like you don't need to have everything be a negative to encourage change you could make certain products cheaper certain slogans more accessible certain mindsets at the moment the origin of the problem is highly convoluted entangled in a web of producer customer connections i think there are more pressing issues regarding environmental progression than punishment So for the time being, funding should be set aside for researching punishable
4: actions and not necessarily punishments themselves. I don't think punishments are necessarily the right thing for this kind of situation, but I do think that our entire society should be sent back to the era of cavemen and cavewomen to reduce our carbon footprint to campfires and torches.
0: (laughs) All right. That's great.
6: I actually really liked what Francesca said, because as I said earlier, like in my heart of hearts, I believe that the only true way to completely come out of where we are right now is to have like a societal overhaul. But that's a ridiculously huge ask. (laughs) So I think it's important to find ways to operate within our current societal systems, especially the ones that are really focused around money and our economy. And I think that something like green taxing is a really good way of using those systems for positive change by creating incent- money-based incentives because we know that that's what's working right now and using that to create a positive effect.
0: So let me say, I'm hugely appreciative that you've all taken the time to be here. And uh, I really appreciate it. You guys have been outstanding. As a teacher, all at least A's, I promise. The Montana case brought by plaintiffs ranging in age from five to 22 was the first of its kind to go to trial in the United States. While the state contended that Montana's emissions are minuscule when considered against the rest of the globes, the plaintiffs argued that the state must do more to consider how emissions are contributing to droughts, wildfires, and other growing risks to a state that cherishes a pristine outdoors. According to the Nation magazine, quote, The ripple effects of this historic decision could be significant in establishing new legal precedent that would create successful climate lawsuits in other states. Invoking the right to a healthy environment will likely become a replicable strategy for lawsuits in any state that has also explicitly acknowledged the right to a healthy environment in their state constitution. Such a list includes only a handful of states—Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, Hawaii, Illinois and Rhode Island, though that list, seems to be slowly growing.
1: Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon or buy me a coffee. We depend on the support of listeners like you.
0: In April of 2023, I participated in yet another of Al Gore's climate reality project's Zoom Conventions. This one oriented around the new possibilities presented by the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act. I had been named a mentor for about 80 climate crusaders and had the good fortune to meet environmental activist Darlon Chang. Darlon struck me as an extremely knowledgeable scientist, and I asked to follow up. My interview with Darlon involved his former life as an Exxon engineer and his present one living in a futuristic community in Colorado. Here now, my interview with Darlon Chang. Hi, I'm here with Darlon Chang. Darlon is a mechanical engineer and an environmental activist. I met Darlon during the Climate Reality Conference in April, and he was in the group that I was working with putting some teeth behind the Inflation Reduction Act and various other new uh, proposals by the Biden administration. The great thing about having Darlon in our group was he has had experience working with the Geos community in Colorado. He's also- also had an extensive career trying to persuade big oil fossil fuels to change their ways. We welcome you, Darlon Chang, to Snap Sessions. We were just talking, you were born on Taiwan and you then moved to New Jersey, I think, when you were a three-year-old, then eventually made it out to Illinois to go to school. Uh, yes, my uh, family immigrated from
7: Taiwan when I was three years old so that my dad could study uh, for a PhD in mechanical engineering in Rutgers University. During my time there, I grew up with my sister, who was five years younger than me. uh, I was very much influenced by my dad. I grew up with a love of science and technology. One of my childhood heroes was Albert Einstein. I read a lot of books about uh, engineering, so my dad influenced me to want to go on a similar path. When I was 10 years old, my dad told me that we were going to be moving from New Jersey. To help comfort me, he said, well, you know, Michael Jordan plays in Illinois. And I was like, who is Michael Jordan? Because I hadn't watched basketball at that time. But it turned out that when we moved to the Chicago area, that ended up being a defining moment for me, followed Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan won six championships during those eight years. I experienced that during my high school years and during my undergraduate years at the University of Illinois. Uh, I ended up staying there for nine years at Vena Champagne uh, until I completed my PhD. Unfortunately, when I graduated in 2003, the economy was still recovering from the dot-com bus and the uh, 9-11 attacks. Unfortunately, the places that mechanical engineers normally go, like Ford Motor Company and General Motors, they weren't hiring, and I didn't get an offer. I ended up with only a handful of offers from oil and gas companies. I was struggling with my conscience at the time of whether I should work for an oil and gas company because I knew very well from studying at the University of Illinois how damaging oil and gas was to the environment, how urgent it was that we need to get off of oil and gas. Even President George W. Bush at the time was saying that the U.S. was addicted to oil. I rationalized to myself based on my peers who went to ExxonMobil and were trying to convince me to go there. I would help to turn the company around from within and help the company transition away from oil and gas. Because ultimately, they sold
0: the opportunity working there as working for an energy company, not an oil and gas company. A lot of the information you supply me, you've been interviewed by a variety of of sources, including CNN, and you've also talked to PBS. You spent the next 16 years, I believe, working for Exxon, and the same time working from the inside on trying to alter the trajectory of the company. Talk to us a little bit about some specific policies in the company that maybe soured you over time, Darlene. A personal
7: experience with a research project at the beginning of my career really, opened my eyes to how the company worked and how difficult it was going to be, transition the company away from oil and gas. And a lot of it had to do with company culture. I went in as a PhD in mechanical engineering. I worked for the Upstream Research Company, and I was there with mostly PhDs and a few master's degrees and using natural gas as a bridge fuel to move on to carbon-free energy sources. The tagline at the time, natural gas was the cleanest burning fossil fuel. Fuel. It would help us transition away from fossil fuels. It was bridge fuel that reminded me a lot of what I learned about the space shuttle Challenger accident in 1986. The efforts of the engineers at the time tried to stop an accident from happening. In particular, Roger Bajoli was trying to convince NASA that it wasn't safe to launch on the date that the Challenger actually went up, because the temperatures were too cold for the O-rings to be able to flex and make sure there was good enough steel to prevent gas from leaking from solid rocket boosters. I took an engineering ethics course that focused a lot on what should engineers do in this situation. And I found myself in a very similar situation with this project because it was focused on a cryogenic liquefied natural gas tank. And this tank is giant. It's like the size of a sports stadium. It was the first of the kind, and it was going to be built in about three years after I started working on it. I had identified a problem with the structural integrity under thermal radiant conditions the tank would experience because the liquid level is going to be moving up and down as the LNG tank is unloaded day after day, and as the liquid level moves up and down, that's going to cause temperature differences within the steel, and those temperature differences were giving the structural engineers a lot of heartburn at the levels that I was seeing with my analysis. Unfortunately, my supervisor didn't want to convey this message to the higher-ups. And he put me in a really bad situation because I felt like my technical work was showing that there was a problem that could cause a structural failure, just as Challenger had a structural failure, ultimately leading to the loss of the astronauts' lives. I didn't want to be responsible for a major disaster that would be on the order of the Exxon Valdez in the 1980s. And I went to my peers to try to get their help, but I found that the culture was very much focused on like a military chain of command, where if your supervisor makes a decision, then you're not really allowed to go around your supervisor and go jump up the chain of command in order to alert safety concerns. So I ended up being punished in the performance ranking system. We had an annual performance ranking system where they rank you according to your peers. I got punished because I was not making my supervisor happy by just telling him that there was no problem. I ended up getting transferred to another division. I felt that this was still unresolved. The project was gonna start in another year or two. So I went to my new management in my new division. I told them my concerns. Fortunately, they listened to my concerns and they allowed me to jump the chain of command. So I got the permission to go to the vice president of engineering at the upstream research company, lay out my concerns, and the vice president surprisingly took it seriously. I had one foot out the door. I was thinking about leaving the company and and quitting, but the vice president took my concerns seriously, and fortunately the disaster was averted. But over the rest of my career, I saw many other situations like this where upper management didn't want to hear any bad news. They made sure the supervisors. Clamp down on any concerns that researchers and the engineers had. Ultimately, I think this is the kind of culture that is keeping ExxonMobil from making any transition away from fossil fuels and taking climate change
0: seriously. That, of course, is a specific incident, which, of course, is very key to your move away from Exxon. Of course, in the last 10, 12 years, there's also been a series of big hurricanes that hit the Houston area. At the time, you were living in Houston and working for Exxon. Tell us about your response to Hurricanes and Harvey, how that affected you.
7: My daughter was born just a couple of months before Hurricane Ike in 2008. That was a really devastating experience for me because my wife was worried sick and couldn't sleep for uh, those four days that we were without power after Hurricane Ike had hit. We had decided not to evacuate at the time because Hurricane Ike was projected to hit as a Category 2 storm, and the predictions seemed to suggest that Category 2 wouldn't be strong enough, really cause a lot of hardship, so we decided not to evacuate. Unfortunately, those predictions were very wrong because even though it hit as a Category 2, it was a large area that was hit, and that managed to knock out power to the Houston area. For about two weeks, for our home, it was for four days. There was also no running water, no gas, because they all use uh, compressors that are powered by electricity to pressure up the gas. So we're stranded for four days with an infant. We we really felt that this was a big sign of climate change to come. I was really disappointed after the event and, and after all the hardships that people endured, that a lot of people still dismiss this as just a natural event and this had nothing to do with climate change. But in my mind, it was a seed. That started me thinking that I don't have much more time to help ExxonMobil turn this around. And I don't see much evidence that ExxonMobil
0: is going to turn turn things around with regards to oil and gas, I, I I need to leave. Now, of course, that's a big deal. Soon thereafter, you start to look around about moving perhaps or finding a different job. One of the investigations you do, you became aware of the uh, GEOS community in Arvada, Colorado. Talk a little bit about your discovery of this and what got you excited about GEOS.
7: Yeah, it was around 2015 that we were looking around the country for potential geosolar communities And we we really wanted to be in a community that was serious about transitioning away from oil and gas. And we only managed to find about three communities nationwide without any dependence on fossil fuels and with the net zero focus, meaning that you generate as much electricity as you need in a year. And all of your heating needs are taken care of by geothermal heat pumps or air source heat pumps to ensure that you don't need natural gas in order to heat your home and you don't use a lot of electricity in order to cool your home during the summer. So out of those three locations, the one that was in Nevada, Colorado, was the most appealing to us, especially since I had a cousin who lived in the area. We made a trip out the Denver area, and we talked with uh, Norbert Klebel, developer of the Geos community, and I managed to convince my wife. It took some time for her to come around to the idea that it was possible to get off of oil and gas, because I had worked my entire career up until that point at ExxonMobil to try to get the company to move away from oil and gas without any success. So my uh, wife was under the impression that it wasn't practical, it wasn't affordable, it wasn't possible to be able to live our lives without oil. Yes, gas, and this community showed her that, it, that she was wrong, that it was actually affordable, it was practical, and technology already exists. My role at ExxonMobil was to create new technology as a researcher. And I felt stymied and blocked at every effort that I made, every project that I did to help to move away from oil and gas, including electrifying facilities and including trying to move to geothermal. All those failed because ultimately ExxonMobil felt that they had so much power over the policies that were going to be enacted, that they had nothing to fear about other alternatives. So as long as they could benefit from the subsidies for fossil fuels, And for the policies that were written in their favor, they felt no need to pursue any of the research projects that I've been involved with or others have been involved with that would move the company away from oil and gas. But this community showed that a lot of that research wasn't necessary because the technology already exists. It's only a matter of just getting enough people to be aware that. They can use these technologies and they they can move their lives away from oil and gas already without having to wait for some miracle technology.
0: When you go and you look at the GEOS website, see what Norbert Klebel had in mind. He initially was able to build about 28 homes, I believe, in the community. And I think there was about 280 or 282 that were planned. He got those. You become, I guess, an investor in a way. You buy a house and there are solar, there are heat pumps there's actually goats that are working in the neighborhood keeping the grass and their weeds down. Tell us a little bit about what each geo house has and what the community originally looked like.
7: The original 28 homes were a mix of different kinds of homes. There are about a dozen single family homes. So these are freestanding homes that are not connected. And those homes use geothermal energy in order to heat the home. So that means there's a hole that's drilled down 300 feet deep and water is pumped down to pick up the heat that's in the ground and then bring it back up. Where a heat pump is like a refrigerator. Heat pumps are just a fancy name for the same thing that runs people's refrigerators. It's just that a heat pump can do both. It can both cool your home and heat your home, uh, not just cool things like a refrigerator does. But it uses electricity only. extract the thermal energy from the water that's coming up from the ground and use that to transfer to the home's air in order to keep everything comfortable and at the right temperature. So geothermal heat pumps are used for the single-family homes Air source heat pumps are used for the townhomes. So the townhomes are the ones that are sharing walls. They're connected. There's a big block of eight townhomes that are sharing walls together. And when you share walls together, that means that you don't have to have as much electricity in order to run the heat pumps. And you also can get by without using geothermal heat pumps because you have less demand for your heating needs. You can use air source heat pumps, which run like the air conditioners that people are used to except that they're much more efficient than air conditioners and that they can also heat the home as well during the winter. And all the homes have solar panels on the roof so that those solar panels, they generate enough electricity to provide the annual electrical use of each home. So the 28 homes, they were really meant to demonstrate that you get a a variety of different living styles and still be able to get to net zero could also encourage practices that allow people to not have to drive as much such as having mixed use several of the townhomes have a first floor area where they could use that for a business and allow people just to come to their first floor to uh, do their business without having to drive downtown or our main street the goats they were there to help deal with weeds because there was a lot of undeveloped land at the time and it was a real community bonding activity for all the neighbors to get together to move the goats to different grazing areas every month so that they could help us avoid having to use fossil fuel lawnmowers. We, we were really thrilled to be part of this community when we first moved here, and uh, we were all very optimistic that we could use this to set an example for what other communities could do. But unfortunately, that came to an end about two years into our journey at GEOS, and, and that was because Norberg, he got divorced. And as part of his divorce settlement, he had to sell the land for the rest of the development. And so the remaining 250 homes got taken over by a new developer who bought up uh, the property. And there wasn't a requirement that the new developer honor the original intent of the community. And that's when the original developer put out a press release saying that he would still continue to build net zero homes. Only six months later, we found out he would break his promise and put in gas pipelines under the excuse that, well, it's going to be net zero if you don't count the gas, but that's completely defeating the point. The whole principle of net zero is to transition away from fossil fuels and gas.
0: Now, here you move in and you're part of this community of 28 homes. Was there kind of an esprit de corps? Did you guys have a kind of a community spirit? Did people kind of share dreams for the future? Yes. There, there was
7: quite a bit of hope that we were going to be a model for other communities, not only in being net zero and being technically advanced and moving away from oil and gas, but also being good neighbors and working together to reduce the amount of energy that we need to use by having a community garden, composting and recycling, having social activities so that we can take care of our entertainment and our social needs, just hanging out with our neighbors rather than having to drive far away to see friends. when we found out that the new developer was going to put in gas, we staged a uh, neighborhood protest. We put together t-shirts saying, no gas holes. Yeah, I saw that. We started a campaign to get our city council to put pressure on the developer to stick with the original vision. We we did succeed with our state representative, Brianna Tatone, she was able to get a joint letter written by her colleagues sent to the developer and sent to our city council saying how important it was that our, our neighborhood honor the original vision as an example for the rest of the country. But unfortunately, we didn't win with city council. City council sided with the developer and the developer just shrugged off all of our pressure. It was very disappointing, and gradually, with COVID wearing things down and the new homes starting to be built, we, we've really lost a lot of that spirit that we had. I, I think that although we set out to be an example for other communities, we ended up having a lot of disappointments that I hope other communities can learn from and avoid. I I think one of the biggest things is a commitment that no matter what happens, no matter who buys the property, the neighborhood will be built with no gas. That is something that we didn't have and that's a big reason why we, we had our downfall. There needs to be much more support from city council in order for something like this to happen. If city council is just going to shrug and say, well, we're just going to let developers do whatever they're going to do. They need to maximize
0: their profit. Then these kind of communities are are really going to be facing an uphill battle like like ours do. Sort of a united response and effectively a real feeling that planetary needs are paramount here. You and I both work with Climate Reality and a number of other environmental organizations. And I think that this sort of ethos those has to be more widespread. And when you bring up the city council, we need more solidarity in this regard, more people with green consciences. I remain an eternal optimist. One of the things I would like to see is that more people like you get involved. there's, There's more of a push. In the end, people
7: want to do the right thing. But if they're swimming upstream all the time, and if everything is going against them, it's going to wear people down. We really need to be able to find a way to have a change in national awareness and in national consciousness about this problem because right now there's still a dismissive attitude even within my own neighborhood about half the neighbors they feel like it's much more important that the developer build the new houses as quickly as possible so that we are not stuck with the bill and that's their mentality and that was a fight that we had we need to align people's mentality around finances so that the finances actually align with our planetary goals. Because right now, they're seen as being opposite, that being able to make sure that you're financially successful is seen as opposed to doing what's right for the future and,
0: and for the climate. This is a tough one. As you and I are recording, these giant wildfires are going on in Canada and the East Coast, your former childhood area, is being hammered with smoke. And of course, here in California and in Colorado, where you are, we've endured wildfires and smoke and so forth in the last years. Who knows what later will happen for us in the summer? This is a constant reminder And this is a constant battle. I'm 71 now, and I suspect I'll be continuing as long as I'm copus mentis to, you know, be involved in these battles. I have a a four-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. I'm very keen on her having a better future. And you mentioned you, you have one or two kids. I have one daughter. Mm-hmm. and she's 15 now she's almost
7: 15 when she was born hurricane ike hit hurricane harvey hit when she was nine years old so that was 2017 she remembered very well we evacuated that time because we didn't want to repeat the power outage that we had in hurricane Ike. hurricane harvey ended up being even more devastating it ended up putting a lot of houses that were just miles away from my home way steep in water from flooding that was a reminder how urgent i i needed to leave houston and I needed to show my daughter that we could do something about climate change. Even after moving to Arvada, we still experienced climate disaster. The Marshall Fire hit a couple of years ago, and the Marshall Fire wiped out a thousand homes that were just miles away from us again. We were lucky out in that we didn't personally lose our home, but we see that our neighbors, people, a family friend of ours lost his home in the Marshall Fire and is still dealing with the aftermath. We had to go through a fight for that in that the fossil fuel industry came in and they tried to pressure the home builders to say that It's too expensive to rebuild these homes net zero. When the city Louisville had put in a city code requiring that all homes that were built new needed to be net zero, and so we had a fight over it was too expensive. Fortunately, my friend had come to live at my house for a few days after Marshall Fire disaster, and seeing how affordable and how practical it was to have a net zero home. So he wasn't brainwashed by the fossil fuel propaganda and the builders trying to keep the status quo, saying that it's impractical. And we're going to have to wait for miracle technologies that are going to take decades to develop. That's completely untrue. There has to be a national awareness that right now we have the technology and we have the ability to do the right thing. It's only a matter of overcoming the interests of the vested interests that have everything rigged for them because of past policies and past subsidies. And we have
0: to unrig it. This is great what you've just said, because if we could go back to what you walked into in the GEOS community in terms of your house, you had geothermal being sucked up to help with heat pumps. Tell us of some of the other things. You had solar panels. Did you have induction stoves? You had extra insulation. Could you tell us a little bit about what the typical geo home looked like? In addition to the active system, for energy
7: efficiency, like the geothermal heat pumps and the air source heat pumps. You also need passive systems. You need to make the home as energy efficient as possible to the point of what they call a passive house. And the passive house movement in Europe really took off in Austria, where a large percentage of their new homes were built with the passive house concept, which is that the house should need as little energy as possible to stay comfortable throughout the year. And the way to do that is to have not only great insulation, but also building practices that make sure that you have very little leakage. Because a lot of the problem is that you're leaking the air that you just heated up or that you just cooled down in only a couple of hours. For most American homes, it only takes about two hours for all the air inside your home to be leaked outside. And that means that the new air coming in has to be heated up again. So a big part of making that happen is the right building practices, making sure that things are built airtight, having the right windows having the right kind of doors. Actually, the door, it's one of the cheapest retrofits you can do. Just replace that door that is typically uh, only giving you one-tenth of the insulation that you really want. Putting in a door that might be a couple hundred dollars, but is well worth the upgrade because of the energy it saves you in the long run. And that's a real trick. A lot of these practices of building the home right, begin with. They cost more initially, but they pay off in the long run. And that's something that builders have been trying to avoid. They don't want to pay for something that's going to pay off in the long run because they don't get the benefit of that. It's the homeowner that's going to get the benefit of that. And we need to change our financing so that that's reflected. The homeowner gets a break because Paying more upfront results in energy savings in the long run. Mortgages should be designed around that idea and builders should be incentivized to pay more upfront because that's what's going to benefit the homeowners and the planet in the long run. As far as cooking, uh, it turns out that the, having gas stove cooking is like having a chain smoker in the house. And it took a while before people realized that having a chain smoker in the house is really bad for the kids. Now we need to get to the point of realizing that having a gas stove in the house, especially without proper ventilation, which is especially true for lower income housing, you're subjecting your, your children to the same health impacts as chain smoking. And it's been found that there's a 42% more cases of childhood asthma in homes that have gas stoves versus homes that have electric cooking. Electric cooking, it comes in two styles. For for my home, I just have a range, and, and that's good enough for, for my wife and, and the way that she cooks. But for those who feel that to really have the highest level of cooking, they've been brainwashed by the oil and gas industry to think that you have to have a gas stove in order to cook like the, the best celebrity chefs. In reality, a number of celebrity chefs are realizing that induction cooking is better than gas stove cooking. And induction cooking is electric cooking, but instead of using resistance heating, which is just using the electrical current to heat up resistors, instead you're using induction, so you're magnetically causing the heat to reach the pan. And you need special pans and cookware that are magnetic. So once people get around the idea that you're going to need new cookware, then you realize that you're not only saving on energy because induction cooking is the most efficient, it directly takes your electricity and transfers it completely to the food rather than having it transferred to the air or transferred to a flame. So induction cooking, it actually gives you the most control and gives you the most power. You actually don't need to have your stovetop completely place to begin with you can actually just get a portable induction cooking stovetop you can get a portable cooktop and and that's only a couple hundred dollars and you can try it out before you decide to
0: take the plunge and
7: completely replace your gas stove
0: with an induction stove. You know, I just got back from a trip to England and in this particular house it had been completely redone and they had an induction stove which I had never used before. At one point in my career, I was a cook for eight years and, you know, we had gas stoves. This was in the late 70s into the mid 80s. You know, I cooked at that and I still cook, but with this stovetop, one of the things I noticed was the pan got hot and the stove itself wasn't hot was I using an induction stove yes that's correct the
7: electricity that's going into the magnetic coil of the induction stove is directly vibrating the molecules of the pan but it's not vibrating anything else so it's actually the safest stovetop you could have because if you accidentally touch the glass it's not hot all the heat went magnetically into the bottom of the pan rather than to the glass stovetop,
0: So that's also safer for the children as well. That was fascinating for me. It took me about a day and a half to get used to it. But once we were used to it, we were off. We were enjoying ourselves on that induction stove. So I was 10 years involved with co-teaching an environmental science class at Mendocino High School here in California, and I was the uh, literature and politics part of the class, and we had an environmental scientist guy, and we did a lot of field research, etc. My favorite assignment, though, was one that I gave toward the end of the year, which was for the last term was for each student to design an environmental homestead. We call it the eco homestead. And we would pretend to give them five acres. And at the time, $250,000, it would probably need to be increased by quite a bit now. And they could then develop an environmentally sustainable homestead. And it was a great assignment and it was lots of fun. And you got all kinds of kids going. Our dream was to get kids to go into environmental engineering and environmental science. That was the their business and what they ended up doing. But we did get a lot of kids to go into environmental engineering. Now, you've been a mechanical engineer, you have a PhD in mechanical engineering, you've been part of the GEO's homestead. I would love, Darlon, to give you free reign now to talk about what you would do to design sustainable houses, etc. Make
7: geothermal communities. I I think geothermal, it's gotten a bad rap in the sense that if you have to make a geothermal well for each individual home, it costs a lot of money. It typically costs about $30,000 to drill a hole for a single home. But if you create a geothermal system for the entire community, then the costs come down quite a bit. And the advantage of being able to do a geothermal district heating system for the entire community is that you can have the system provide heat where it's needed. So you have a network where you can take heat and put it where it's needed. And you can also take advantage of waste heat. So if you happen to have industrial facilities nearby, they have a lot of hot water and typically that heat is just wasted and sent into the air. But if you have a district heating system, you can connect it with industrial heating systems nearby and take advantage of that waste heat so you can save even more energy doing that. I'd also like to have a microgrid in that development. The microgrid would be a system that would provide power if there's a blackout due to a hurricane, as I experienced back in Houston. Wildfires can knock out power too, and having backup power is really immense peace of mind for a community. Moreover, the microgrid save on a lot of waste that we get from having to rely on the uh, grid that uses high voltage transmission lines uh, that brings power from coal power stations far far away even renewable power you, you can lose a lot of energy having to get the power delivered to you from far away but if you have a microgrid that stores the energy from the solar panels that are in your community you can do a lot to be able to save energy and even better if you can have electric vehicles in that community serve as part of the microgrid. So that each electric vehicle, when it's parked, it becomes a battery that is part of the microgrid and helps to store energy when you need it. It can also shave off energy during peak demand. One thing the utilities like to say is that they need the natural gas plants in order to quickly turn them on during peak demand in in the middle of the day. If you have microgrids instead for communities, then those microgrids will take away the need for using fossil fuel plants to quickly turn on and off. Community-based solutions is really where I'd like to go. Because as great as Geos is, we don't have district geothermal heating and we don't have microgrid. Unfortunately, our developer is controlling our finances and controlling our destiny right now and city council isn't stepping in to
0: change that. I love all your ideas. My father was an electrical engineer. He had learned electronics in the Navy, and he really wanted to, so he became the first guy in our family to go to college, and he went on the GI Bill, and he ended up sort of doing ceilings and stuff like that, lighting systems and so on. But long story short, I've always respected engineers' thinking. We need you guys to solve these problems for a better planet. It's one of my theories that one of the great advantages in life that we can have in the future is engineers with green consciences. People like you are going to make a big difference. In my talks for Snap Sessions, it strikes me that we need more people like yourself. Do you have a lot of friends who are similarly like-minded, who engineers who you, you guys talk about this kind of stuff? For- For sure. A lot of the engineers
7: I work with at ExxonMobil, they have the same concerns I do. They have the same conflicts with their conscience. And I think the problem is that a lot of engineers feel like if they make moves to do the right thing, it's going to jeopardize their current career, especially those in the oil and gas industry. I hate that a lot of it is that they feel this is political, that if they talk too much or they try to take action to use their engineering skills for climate action, that it will be looked down upon and it will hurt them in their career and it will hurt their ability to be able to provide for their family. I think this is a real shame. I heard that there was a meeting at Shell where engineers were surveyed as to How much do they want their projects to be related to climate action? And it was overwhelmingly showing that they wanted their projects to deal with climate action. But on the same survey, they they were also asked, do you feel that your supervisors are supporting that? And the answer was very much no. And that's my personal experience as well, that uh, my peers, my colleagues, they don't feel that there's a social shift yet where you can
0: focus on climate action and be able to make a living for your family. You are working now with a startup, GeoSolar Technologies. Tell us a little bit about GeoSolar Technologies and your hopes for the company and where your directions will be.
7: Yeah, thanks. So I joined the GeoSolar Technologies startup company last year. After not having any success getting a job in climate action, I applied for the Clean Energy Corps, applied for many Department of Energy jobs, National Renewable Energy Lab jobs, but I found that my experience was the same as my peers who were trying to do the same. Having ExxonMobil on your resume and having an oil and gas background doesn't win you any favors when you're applying for renewable energy jobs. Most renewable energy companies are nowhere as big and nowhere as powerful as ExxonMobil, not from a a financial standpoint or a political standpoint. I, I was finding the same thing as many my former colleagues at ExxonMobil, that to take climate action as a career you have to seriously consider being part of a startup company. So I joined Geosolar Technologies because of my experience here at the Geos community. A number of folks at Geosolar Technologies, they, they also are a part of the Geos neighborhood. They were a part of building it and designing it. The aim of Geosolar Technologies is to go after the much, much bigger market of renovating homes because you only get about a million homes being built new in the U.S. every year, but you've got about 140 million homes of which you'd want to get about half of them, uh, 70 million to be renovated to be completely gas-free and net zero to get anywhere close to cutting our emissions in half by 2030, which is the IPCC goal. The 70 million homes that need to be renovated, that's a much, much bigger market than just a million homes that are built every year. Also, Geosolar Technologies is really focused on using conditioning energy recovery ventilation as the heart of renovating people's homes. Uh, A lot of renovations miss out on the importance of air quality. So you don't want to have gas in your homes because of air quality. But if you seal up your homes and if you use a passive house concept, you also have to have ventilation in order to make sure that you have good air quality. Because the goal is you don't want to leak your air to the outside. But you also want to make sure that your air quality is good enough to maintain healthy homes. So energy recovery ventilation is a big part. I feel really happy to be working with a former professor of mine at the University of Illinois. His name is Professor Ty Mule, who really pioneered and made commercially successful the idea of using energy recovery ventilation that's based on the carbon dioxide level, the air quality levels in your house. It detects when your air quality is not good enough, and then it brings in fresh air as needed. While at the same time that fresh air is coming in, it's transferring heat from your outgoing air to the air that's coming in so that you still save the energy even though you're bringing in fresh air. So that is really what we're hoping to bring to the market. We had an initial public offering last year, but unfortunately it didn't reach our goals because of the uncertainty about the Inflation Reduction Act and also the uncertainty about the debt ceiling fight. Now that the debt ceiling fight is is finally over, we're planning to have another offering this year to get us to the goals that we need to in order to be able to really retrofit on a community-level scale. We don't want to just retrofit and renovate home by home. We want to renovate entire neighborhoods. So we're looking for neighborhoods where you could get a dozen, two dozen, homeowners to get in on it take advantage of the economy of
0: scale now that's great so basically what we're talking about with uh, geo Solar technologies is more of your community based solutions of what you were just talking about, getting whole communities to make this changeover. And that being something that, of course, we hugely need if we are going to meet any of our goals in terms of carbon reduction in the atmosphere, et cetera. So I have to say, Darlan, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Darlan Chang, I met once again in April. I was very lucky to have him in the group that I was working with and the Climate Reality Project's big conference about what we can do with the Inflation Reduction Act, etc. And I asked, "Can I interview you?" And he very kindly said, "Yes." So we're very fortunate to have Darlon Chang on Snap Sessions. We want to thank you very much, Darlon. It was great talking with you, Doug. Thanks. I interviewed Darlon Chang on June eighth, twenty twenty-three, and then over the course of the next many months our Snap Sessions podcast fell behind in producing our shows. In late December, I contacted Darlon to say his podcast was next up and should be out in January. He wrote back saying that GeoSolar Technologies was doing its IPO, its initial public offering, this very afternoon, and he invited me to show up. In a moment of serendipity, I just witnessed Darlon and a group of investors introduce GeoSolar Technologies to the world. GST proposes to transform up to 80 million American homes to all electricity over the next 12 years, saving billions of tons of CO2 emissions. Homes would be re-insulated, geothermal wells would be dug, solar arrays and heat pumps would be installed, and indoor air filtration would be vastly improved. Buildings would be decarbonized, electrified, and have their air purified. Houses would become self-sustaining, and systems would begin paying for themselves from day one. I was genuinely excited for Darlon, for Arvada, Colorado, and for the future of our planet. It's amazing where a little podcast can lead you. And thanks to our activist of the show, engineer and energy expert, Darlon Chang. Our production team includes TechMeister producer Marshall Brown writer-interviewer Doug Nunn, logo designer Daniel Stieglitz, and student interns Max Oatney and Frey Barty. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an outlook, both local and international, on the arts, and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.
1: Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash Snap Sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snapist Maximus contributors, Ron Hawksbrook, and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers, John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samas. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family today.